This week on the Crisis Conflict Emergency Management Podcast. In disaster planning, this has really scared us from the start that people would be very afraid because actually even with the worst threats, as you well know in emergency management, so that's the worst kind of terrorism, the worst CBRNE um, chemical attacks, nuclear attacks, the worst high consequence disease, fear is no use to us. It doesn't create agency, it doesn't create action. Welcome to the Crisis, Conflict, and Emergency Management Podcast, where we have global conversations and share perspectives about international crisis, preparedness, and how to build more resilient societies. My name is Kyle, and I'll be your host. And just how vulnerable are we to the changing international environment, and what can we learn from this experience? From AI to space warfare to community development and crisis communications, there's something here for everyone. Join us for unique international conversations and perspectives into the current threats, challenges, and risks to our society. This podcast is brought to you by Capacity Building International and sponsored by the International Emergency Management Society. So today we're joined by Professor Lucy Easthope, who is a leading authority on recovering from disaster. And so for over two decades, she has challenged others to think differently about what comes next after tragic events. She is a passionate and thought-provoking voice in the area that few know about emergency planning. However, in the time of COVID-19 pandemic, her work has become decidedly more mainstream. Her book, The Recovery Myth, was published in 2018, and her next, When the D Dust Settles, is published by Hodder in March of 2021, so it's coming out very soon. She is a professor in practice of risk and hazard at the University of Durham, where she co-founded the After Disaster Network, a fellow in mass fatalities and pandemics at the Center for Death and Society, and University of Bath and Research Affiliate at the Joint Center for Disaster Research, Massey University, New Zealand. Lucy, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's great to see you again. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really pleased to be with you today. So the last time we met, and I think we were having a discussion, was last year in 2021 in the Teams International Models sort of webinar series. And then during that time, we had partnered with the Manchester uh, briefing at, at the University of Manchester. And we're having discussions about sort of COVID and COVID recovery and, and all those things like that. And, and so fast forward now, probably a good, I don't know, six or eight months, uh, a lot of things have sort of changed. So what's been keeping you busy during that time? Well, I think you're catching me actually right at the moment of a transition point in the UK recovery. Um, the UK and the US are on similar paths. And uh, obviously right now in the UK, there's a big discussion about whether we will become the first nation to remove all restrictions, including isolation, which is, is causing a lot of interest and, and indeed concern here. And um, of course, in recovery planning and recovery uh, management in disaster, these points of transition are something that we've always explored because they always feel too soon. And so for me, yet again, really, a lot of the, the, the what has been quite niche disaster recovery literature becomes very relevant. So that's that's really the big the big discussion of the day over in the UK is, is what is this? How on earth can we be ready to move to a next phase? And what does that look like? Yeah, I think that's a discussion that's happening quite a bit these days with, with many different countries. And as we try to at least, you know, sort ourselves out and try and return to some degree of normalcy. And, you know, when I was looking at the first book that you wrote, and and I thought it was extremely interesting, this quote, which is why I wanted to have you on the podcast as well, because in this podcast, in terms of crisis, conflict, emergency management, we look at the international aspect of crisis, and then we sort of draw different experiences and, and the challenges to, you know, 
what we've learned in the past, you know, specifically like me from being the U.S., I sort of have a U.S. perspective on disaster management and crisis management. But really, um, the interesting thing is that since I've worked internationally for so long, that what we've learned is not always the same in every country. And so the, the point is, when I looked at the book that you had written, it really says that there was a line in here that I thought was really interesting which it says you were drawing on two decades of work and the book develops on an ethnography of the residents and responders in one flooded village and applies this to other cases of UK flooding, as well as to post-disaster recovery in New Zealand. And I thought that was extremely interesting because it's almost the exact opposite of some of the work that I've done, where I've come from this like one fixed idea of way systems and structures should be. And then I was exposed to things internationally and found out, you know, I really had to challenge my assumptions about how we would do disaster management, crisis management, planning, interagency cooperation, all these things were just severely challenged, you know, in my experience. So can you go into this a little bit more about what that experience was and how you were sort of looking at this this perspective in terms of recovery? Oh, absolutely. And I, I was always really pleased, actually, when the recovery myth was reviewed in the Australian Journal of Emergency Management, which is obviously a, a key Bible for us in emergency management. And the review opens with, you know, what can this what can this woman writing about a village in South Yorkshire teach teach the disaster management world? You know, and this was an Australian academic saying, of course, we we know about floods in Australia. There's nothing else for us to learn and certainly uh, nothing specific different that would travel. And that's that really helped me when I was writing When the Dust Settles, because the point that I think that comes out for those of us who are passionate about learning from disaster is you're being schooled the whole time. So whenever you spend uh, in-depth time with a community, they're teaching you about something new that perhaps you haven't considered. You have to be very, very open uh, in both disaster response and disaster recovery to be able to watch and to listen. So in When the Dust Settles, I call it recovery listening, which is basically silence on the behalf of the responder. Um, you are not going in to teach anybody anything. You are there to watch and learn and to calibrate the mistakes that you might have made in response and try and correct them next time. So that's that's there's something very humbling, I think, about working in disaster recovery, uh, which is slightly different from response. And I think also uh, linked to that is, is this concept of the analogous disaster. So for me as a government advisor in the pandemic, one of the things that you know people were, were really resistant to was the idea that there was lots of lessons and learning from other disasters. Even other pandemics, they were saying, well, this is a corona, so you can't possibly apply um, Ebola or AIDS or influenza. And that isn't the point in disaster management. The point in disaster management is to see how peoples and communities react to um, to change and, and what matters. So, for example, one of the areas that I do a lot of work in is the recovering and, and responding to children and disasters. And it actually doesn't necessarily matter the cause of the disruption. Um, how you center children in a disaster response can travel from from place to place, and and it's a pretty uniform principle wherever you are in the world. Well, that's quite interesting. Can you explain that a little bit more? So, what do you mean by centering children in in that phase? Well, one of the difficulties with disaster recovery, I think, particularly, we've really found it in the pandemic was this idea that there are groups within society that you have to um, you have to allow to win in recovery, and one of those has to be children. Um, and children have a very different disaster experience than adults. So prior to um, the pandemic, I'd been part of a Save the Children and University of Lancaster project, prioritising uh, children's resilience in disaster, but also 
um, really understanding that they are individual citizens in a disaster. They're not little adults. They have their own needs in a disaster. And one of the things with children is they desperately need horizon and a hope and future and fun and excitement. And one of the reasons why I do make a case, I can make a case to, to say we're moving too fast in recovery all the time, but one of the cases I can counter that, because a good disaster recoverer can argue both sides, is that the children of nations of, of like, like the UK and, and USA and indeed all, all around the world need a future now. And so that that does perhaps change some of the way that we put the, you know, we remove some of the fear, we open society up a bit, we prioritise education and safe spaces for children. Um, and that will feel at odds to other bits of the disease management. And so people, I think, think that when you prioritise children in disaster, it's just more of the same that you were doing for adults. But actually, sometimes it means that you are going against what might work for adults and picking children as winners. And that can, I think that we haven't really fully explored that in the UK. And, and I wonder if it's the same in the US. I think in the context of the current times, I'm not sure we've learned that lesson yet. And I think that's unfortunate. I think that is, that's a, an an incredibly important point. And I recall during our conversation during the webinar, you know, we had this sort of momentary discussion about we needed to stop sort of doing fear-based management and using fear-based reasons to get people to do things. And have you seen that sort of change a bit? Because, you know, we were just talking about how things were starting to open up and, you know, we're sort of changing our policies, you know, coming out of the last wave with COVID. How effective now that we're sort of two years into this has been sort of this fear-based thing? Because exactly like what you're saying, you know, as I try and wrap my head around the concept is that, you know, okay, you have children which have a very specific and unique requirement based on their own needs. And then we have sort of the fear-based messaging trying to get compliance out of people. You know, how are we to, you know, two years later looking at this now, how effective were we? And then how can we get out of where we are today and, and move forward? And and we're right in the center of something that I had really worried that we would see. So we are in the UK at the stage where particularly in the mainstream news media and in social media, people who uh, have been very afraid for two years are feeling very abandoned. And one of the one of the sort of suggestions really was that the the British compliance with things like locking down and not going out and, and adhering to really more than the law. So really what we saw was very high levels of additional adherence. We had laws that allowed this and that with some exemptions and people um, vastly over interpreted those to some extent. You know, so if you if you were studying each change to the regulations, you'd think, I'm not sure that's illegal. But you're sort of, you know, your Auntie Jill was saying, no, it definitely is illegal. We mustn't go to the park. So the public had, uh, in, in general, had massively um, bought into the idea of the terror of this. And in disaster planning, this had really scared us from the start that people would be very afraid because actually even with the worst threats, as you well know, in emergency management, so that's the worst kind of terrorisms, the worst CBRNE um, chemical attacks, nuclear attacks, the worst high consequence disease, fear's no use to us as planners. You know, it's, you know, there's no fear in this dojo to use Cobra Kai. It's no good to us. It's stultifying. It doesn't create agency. It doesn't create action. 
So we had perhaps rested on our laurels prior to the pandemic, expecting that all of that research, that fear should not be part of any messaging, that fear had done disastrous things in things like um, times of HIV messaging, that fear was not the way to get compliance. And all of a sudden, everything we, we, we believed we'd be supported in was thrown out of the window. And I think you've had similar experiences in the US, but certainly in the UK, we've had very, very big use of media campaigns. The virus is depicted as as black dust all around us. Lots and lots of use of imagery of things like people on ventilators, people at the end of life. And that was not something we had expected to see in our emergency management. It was justified here by some public health specialists as being akin to the kind of messaging that you had seen around cigarette use. So the use of very shocking images on cigarette packs. The problem with making it analogous to that is, of course, you want people to stop smoking. You know, not smoke 10 down to two, just stop smoking. The problem with using fear like this, it's like using a tourniquet on a limb. It's its very uncontrolled. It stops everything. So what we are now reaping uh, the consequences of, for example, is we have very delayed missed oncology care because our posters said things like stay away from the hospitals. Don't don't go to the hospital. And so people didn't take a lump or a nasty cough or a strange mark on their leg or a rash to the hospital. So. We knew as planners, I think, that you would see waves of consequence to that fear messaging. And the two most serious are what we're seeing right now. So one is the consequences of some of the hidden societal delays. We have, for example, quite a few people who didn't seek help and have died at home. And then secondly, we are seeing a schism in our population from people who cannot believe that any government would be so negligent as to remove the restrictions that have kept them sort of safe for two years. And it's very painful now as a society. There's no there's no quick fix to managing this next stage. If you were to go on television, for example, and to say, I think I think we can get through this, I think that we'll we'll find a way, you would be a denier, you would be a minimizer of the disease. I wish we'd never done what we did and, and I was very vocal about that at the start. That's very interesting waves of consequence in, in, in terms of the, the terminology there. And in terms of recovery, it is interesting to think about, you know, as we are sort of waning off of these pandemic restrictions and looking at social acceptance of both either having restrictions or, or removing restrictions, there's almost this two-pronged approach of having to manage two audiences, right? So the ones that have sort of endorsed and sort of become very comfortable with with restrictions and then those who have never wanted them in the first place, right? And each sort of have different messaging. And it, it, I can imagine it's extremely difficult to try and appeal to both audiences at the same time. Absolutely. And the worst thing that can happen in emergency management is that the two sides of what are essentially both important debates become politically polarised. So here in the UK, you know, there's been quite a strong movement within our ruling Conservative Party to lessen and release restrictions. And so it's been very easy and, and almost populist, really, for our opposition to say that's you know neglectful, let's have more. And somewhere lost in the middle is is the science and the medicine and the emergency planners saying, actually, we'd have rather you hadn't done either of those things. We'd have rather we'd have been allowed to sort of plough our own furrow with exactly as we'd planned to, which was that everybody should have a very healthy respect of what is a very nasty virus, but with lots of caveats for how we will support people, keep medical services open. 
And it's interesting because, you know, even within our own one island, we have devolved assemblies and Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland have all taken slightly different paths. So in terms of, you know, disaster scholars wanting to analyse it right in the you know the geography, <laughs> the border is literally on motorways. You can see how different communication approaches are affecting people. So I, I've, I've literally just spoken to a Scottish scholar who said to me, you know, for any for, for whatever faults there might be in Scotland, at least people won't feel as abandoned as the English do today because their leader has sort of talked them through and is also she has higher trust ratings than our than our prime minister, which had always been considered a, as you well know, a real point in emergency management is, is it true trust? Is it very fragile trust? Will people follow it anyway? And so we, we, we're testing every disaster political social theory we ever speculated on as disaster scholars right now, I think. That's absolutely, that's absolutely true. And, and one of the things since, you know, I, I traveled quite a bit, even during the pandemic and the compliance levels and sort of perceptions of government have been very different in very different countries, you know, and, and, and one of the countries that I was in, like, nobody really cared, like you couldn't even tell there was a pandemic. Right. And so it was just simply an, an issue of sort of the culture with the people and the adaptation of the policies. I mean, the messaging was there with with the government and everything else, but people just really just were sort of nonchalant about it and saying, well, we'll, we'll live and we'll move on. And of course, they were affected by the pandemic, and they they should take these things very seriously. Of course, all that. But the the traveling from one country that was very restrictive and going into another country that was just not restrictive at all was very sort of a culture shock for me. You mm-hmm. know, because mm-hmm. you were like, well, aren't we supposed to be wearing masks and doing all these things? And then it was just not the case. People just didn't simply care. And then when people do get sick, they were just like, well, we know what it is. So, <laughs> you know, we're, we're not going to go get tested. We're not going to do that stuff because it's just we're sick and we'll we'll toughen up and we'll live with it. And so it's incredibly interesting to see how the sort of the, the different cultures have adopted this and the way that things have managed this across various different nations. And everybody's had their own sort of approach to this. But mm-hmm. sort of, again, coming off of that. And, and coming back to your point about children, you know, so we we obviously see now there's these sort of two groups and two perspectives out there. And, there, uh, you know, it's a it's a prism there. Right. So there's many groups in between and various degrees of, of belief and personality and all that stuff. But essentially, you're saying, you know, there's some that feel like now they're abandoned and others that felt like they were abandoned before when all these restrictions came in. And so now we have these two points that we're having to manage. But in the middle are children. Right. Yeah. And then so we, we see and, and in many different cases where they're reducing sort of these preventative measures, um, but still apply, say, masking for schools and, and children and all these things. And that, which I think is somewhat astonishing because it's either like all or none to a certain extent. Yeah, and I can't imagine sort of the, the the impact that we're having on kids. And I haven't really seen a lot of people discuss it in the way that you're talking about it. It's more or less been that kids were sort of this third party thing that people would talk about uh, and instead of actually trying to to deal with in a comprehensive way. And and I think the Save the Children and it, the project was called Cuida, which means take care in Spanish and, and Portuguese. And um, I'm so honoured and privileged. That's one of the wonderful things about my life is, you know, getting dragged into brilliant research projects and, and bris- brilliant 
events all of the time. And and I'm it was so uh, apposite and timely that that was the one that I'd been working on right up until two events, actually. I was working on it when the Grenfell fire happened here in, in the UK in 2017, which is also very much a children's disaster. You know, 19 children lost their lives. Uh, the site itself is surrounded by schools and primary schools. Uh, it's, a, it's an area of, of deprivation where there are very high levels of child poverty. So it, it, I was so grateful to the project. And then the people of North Kensington in London had really taught me a lot about children's eyes on a disaster. I knew them anyway. So I'm a child activist of disaster and, and my new book opens with my own experience of, of, um, of getting to understand the community's response to a disaster. But, um, you know, what I find helps my practice the most is just being constantly re-reminded. So Grenfell had really, really focused me. And then when the pandemic happened, of course, one of the things that happens is children's voices are so easily erased from the discussion, you know, so that they're, they're always relying on advocates. And those advocates at things like government level are two of our government departments, Department for Education and Department for Health and Social Care. And very sadly for us, what the records show is that those meetings that perhaps should have been happening December 2019 to March 2020 weren't happening. So, you know, it's not like the children are having meetings and and uh, cabinet office briefings, as they're called here in the UK. They're relying on big grown-ups to go and represent their needs. And, you know, I came in to advise and you're advising people on the effects of lockdown on young children in abusive settings. But the lockdown's already happened. So you are being asked to talk about what they might see as we're as we're opening up the doors. And so you are literally preparing social workers and planners to see the harm. You don't get to fix the harm preemptively. And that was, that's, you know, that's a really low, dark point for me in terms of, of giving advice. So what has that been like then in terms of having those conversations? So you're already in the thick of it, so to speak, and now you're having this conversation sort of predicting outcomes without the ability to sort of change course. And I think it's something we really picked up in in the webinar last year is um, I think from all of us, there was a collective plea for respect for the concept of emergency management and disaster management. There was a plea for the understanding of the role of both research and practitioners. Um, there's an understanding, you know, that you wear the badge of the organisations that you're representing. I feel quite sort of sneakily proud at the moment that, it, you know, it's not a huge movement, but certainly something I've noticed since I've had a social media platform is more people will say if a, if a minister tries to say there weren't plans and there weren't planners, people will go, I think they were and copy me in you know it's a small thing that makes me smile it's a tiny legacy but I'm you know I'm proud of it is you know for a short time before we all forget again what I would like to see is the recognition that there are plans and there are planners there are disaster management and of course you know other great um, scholars this year like um, Sam Montano in disasterology has made that play very very strongly and I know that in the USA you were walking a similar path to us in the UK that you've been perhaps raising concerns about whether FEMA was fit for purpose and then you have the event and then you're asking questions about, but we already have existing law. Uh, we've seen the same discussion in Canada. Do we need new law? We've seen a lot of concern about the framing of this as a public health disaster when it is in just when it is in fact a disaster disaster. And, and so we have to reflect on 
what we can do to make sure that that we are heard much louder preemptively. My worry in the UK, you pro- you guys will probably go a similar way. My worry in the UK is that, as we always do after big disaster, we've now spent a lot of money on uh, fancy kit and surveillance centres, and it's a very macho, masculine environment. We've rebranded our health pandemic uh, centre as the UK Health Security Agency. And for a few years, it's going to be very cool. And so one of the things that I think I bring out in both books, but really bring out in When the Dust Settles, is, is the reality of life as an emergency planner. And I think one of the big things for me is that people people need to embrace and celebrate the fact that emergency planning is enthusiastic people turning up with a laptop of good plans and things that have worked elsewhere and um, not be afraid that they're not, you know, Jason Bourne or James Bond. It's, it's, it's right that we are who we are. So I think there's a big discussion for us about how we get into those spaces a lot earlier. I definitely think so. So let's, let's turn to your book that you have coming up in March. You know, what was your sort of motivation to go from, you know, the recovery myth and into uh, when the dust settles? What was the the motivation and what was sort of the, the, the catalyst for you to come out with a new book? Yeah, so um, the recovery myth took a long time, as you can tell. Um, and actually, one of the I reasons imagine. that the recovery myth uh, took a while is that um, I, I, I worked all the way through it. So I was doing a PhD while I have a, an independent consultancy where I provide advice and practice advice in disaster management. And of course, as you well know, you know the world faces challenges constantly. And I tend to get called in mainly for either UK events or events involving UK citizens. So um, either a government or an organisation will call me in. And one of the things that the book makes very clear is there's just disasters happening all the time, you know, just because we haven't all got focus on them, you know, they're happening all the time. So I studied for my PhD and I have an academic position alongside my practice position. And one of the things I was really scared about was was putting stuff down on paper. And I think obviously the recovery myth and obviously having to publish a thesis for my doctorate broke the ceiling for me a bit. You know, I was able to write stuff down and I got a lot of support for the recovery myth. And um, I started to write short opinion pieces for uh, the Guardian newspaper. And one of the things that really buoyed me on was people saying I had no idea there was a world of emergency planning. And so in order to understand it, people asked me to write about it more and more. And eventually it sort of started to take shape as when the dust settles. And it went, uh, you know, it started to to sort of look like a book and then it went out to a publishing auction. So I had a, I was very, very lucky to find a literary agent. And one of my motivations really was I, everything we've just said before, I wanted to be the ultimate answer to the question of we were we weren't prepared, we couldn't see it coming, there are no plans, there are no planners. And I knew there was no point in me writing a book just for disaster management colleagues, like we already know. <laughs> so this had to be something that would would be on on normal bookshelves, not our bookshelves. So it had to have a bit more of a of a, a, a splash. And I was very, very lucky to find the literary agent that I did and then the publishing house that I did. Um, and then they worked me so hard during the pandemic. And the thing about me, I, I don't I don't need a lot of sleep. And I write best in the dark. <laughs> so it's a, it's a nocturnal book. And uh, it's about my life through a series of disasters that have left their mark on me. And um, you also get the sense of my life running through it. So there's a 
big theme of, of uh, me and my husband. And also all the time that I'm responding in what is quite, as you well know, quite a macho world. It's got quite a long history of a, a militaristic uh, world. I'm trying to uh, have children. So there's a lot of discussion about, because uh, I work in, in disaster planning specifically on death and mortuaries. And there's a lot of discussion about my own journey to have a baby while also working in this in this world. So it's, it's, it's not your standard emergency management text, <laughs> but hopefully it'll be a good read. No, I'm sure. I'm sure it is. Can't wait for it to come out. I'll certainly pick it up. I, I think that, you know, it's quite interesting when you're talking about sort of this, you know, there's no plans and no planners perspective, because, you know, there's a lot of discussion in many different places. Well, I, first, let me caveat that in many different places. Mostly, I think the, the conversation I've been paying to is in the United States. But from traveling around the world and seeing different countries, they're not having the same conversation. But they're sort of in the U.S. There's this conversation that sort of comes up every once in a while. It, which is about sort of the role of the emergency manager, right? And so, as you mentioned, it sort of came or was born out of this idea of response, response only. So you sort of have the police chiefs, the fire chiefs, the ex-whatever military and everything else like that that sort of take over this role in preparedness and response. I think it has grown more comprehensively in recent years, say the last decade, it's gotten a lot better. But there's still a discussion. And I think there's still a discussion because, you know, given the, the size of the United States, many places don't have emergency managers. Uh, at the same time, if they do have them, it's, you know, or is it budgeted? Is it, you know, it, there's all sorts of like administrative government, public administration things behind that in terms of if they can afford somebody at a municipal or a county or a state level. And then it just really becomes an an issue of what is the role of this person in our society, in our cities, in our communities. Then you start blending in all this other stuff that comes along with that, right? So then it's chief resilience officer, or you even see the terms coming out now of chief heat officer, or whatever the case is in like some of the bigger cities in terms of like, uh, you know, heat mapping and heat predictions and everything that go that goes along with that. So I, I often think that while we haven't resolved the identity crisis, as you said, where are the plans and the planners and do they even exist? We haven't resolved the identity crisis. And at the same time, it's sort of being conflated with all these sort of reformed and new ideas about resilience and all these other sort of things that are coming up. Is that something similar that you're seeing or is that just sort of my limited view on things? <laughs> oh, no, that's absolutely our path, too. And it's never more obvious than if you look at job descriptions at the moment. So, you know, it, there's a lot of resilience in there and security in there. And sometimes there'll be this job role advertised with quite a good salary, but there's health protection in there and all these different things. And it's like, what, what, what are we, you know? And one thing about having to write both books actually was the discipline for a wider audience of having to define what emergency management is and isn't. And, I, you know, we have this discussion all the time. So somebody came to me and, and said, oh, I want to work in your field and I want to do security. And like, well, that's security management and that's this discipline, you know. And so how do we boundary what, what we do? And we struggle, you know, I've had some very, very fun times at um, the FEMA Higher Education conference in Washington because we struggle exactly as you guys do with what does competency look like what does accreditation look like and the the I think probably one of the most important lessons for emergency managers probably from biblical times onwards is that the public will be drawn to the idea of a kind of very certain type of competency that will look uh, quasi militaristic and one of the things we have to, I think, directly challenge is the idea that different from that is not 
is not threatening. So people, so one of the things, one of the reasons actually that the book got written down on paper was one question that came to me from a documentary TV company was, would I wear a body cam? So would I would I wear a body cam and show the inside world of emergency planning? And you're thinking as, you know, you're smiling at me now, you're thinking that that would mean like, there's a, there's, maybe I have some toast and then I will write an Excel spreadsheet and send some emails and then I might have some more toast. And that's a quiet day. And then on a busy day, I might do a bit of pacing and wait for a call that probably isn't going to come in for another four days because I do recovery and aftermath. And so I was thinking, well, what will this body cam <laughs> pick up apart from a lot of a lot of snacking. So I think one of the difficulties for us now is to really convey the and this is why I'm really proud of the recovery myth because it talks so much about what we make the technologies of recovery. So we give a big grand name to things that are Excel spreadsheets and maps and Word documents, and we should be be proud of them. And I, as we discussed in the webinar, I really enjoy any time that I get with undergraduates because they're doing the best and most important course in the world that is the most hidden course. You know, so few people know. Um, somebody asked me on a, on a thing a couple of weeks ago, is there somewhere you can study emergency management? And, you know, how, how can that be a question? Of course you can study emergency management. So that's, I'm on a bit of a one-woman campaign there. You know, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I can't imagine what a body cam on, on anybody in emergency management would look like, right? Uh, so it that's quite hilarious. I mean, it, they would see me do, well, I, I, I don't necessarily say I do a lot of emergency management, but more sort of like international crisis management stuff. But the, um, you know, I, they would just simply see lots of PowerPoint. You know, like what, I'm not sure it's going to be exactly the most exciting thing that they're going to be, you know, sort of uh, watching there. You'll have to get like a year's worth of footage just to be able to find something, you know, 10 minutes of something interesting. But um, I, I think that that that's really I don't know. Is So is it a messaging problem, I guess? Because like you're saying, it people are still asking. I had yeah. two thoughts while you were talking. One was the fact that that sounds like it's a messaging problem because people still are not aware of the profession and things like that. And, and in many cases, that's the case uh, in different countries. But also at the same time, you know, I see that there's sort of a this I don't want to call it a stigma, but this I sort of in the marketing, you'd say like an avatar or like this ideal sort of vision of what you see as somebody being the emergency manager or whatever. And that's really, that is a bit more like a militaristic authoritarian. That's like, we're going to come in, we're going to control, everything's going to be fine. Don't worry. You know, but it doesn't, doesn't necessarily have to be the person, you know, that we sort of built it out to be. And I would argue that's not the case anymore. But I was in a completely different country and it was really interesting because we were having a conversation around sort of these different, say, cultural perspectives. And it really came down to a discussion one day because we were using the the term you know, I was, I was talking about sort of occupational safety and health programs and what that means in the workforce and industrial accidents and all these things. And and we kept getting really lost in conversation because we kept talking about security and like, no, we have police and security guards and we, you know, do all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, OK, that's we, we covered that. You know, now I want to talk about safety. And they're like, yes, security guards and police and everything. And I was like, what's happening here? You know, like I couldn't reconcile in my head what was happening. And I and it was because simply the language that they were using does, has one word for both, safety yeah. and security. So it was, it, it was almost yeah. impossible to divide the two topics. And and I wonder to a certain extent, to, to bring it back what we're talking about, we've sort of been ingrained culturally to think that way. 
that you need to have this person that's taking control and making things safe for everybody. And, and we sort of all have an, an idea of who that person looks like in our mind. But I think that we do need to challenge what that is because there's greater um, you know, power and sort of diversity of thought, I think, in terms of having a team manage these things instead of having just one sort of person that can stand up and, and take control, so to speak. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I am. I'm. I've sort of cast myself a, a bit. I think as a as a one woman challenger of of that at the moment. And the other thing for me is, I I hope it will last. I have an infinite capacity to want to learn more about things to do with disaster. And of course, there's always been there's been sort of separations in our field. You know, even I've brought some boundaries into the way I'm talking. So I've said, you know, I respond mainly to UK disasters, or I do this. So. You know, but actually what you realise is you can learn constantly from lots of different places. And I remember the first time some of my master's students from uh, India and Africa started to use the word food security or water security as it became much more ingrained in the aid world. So they'd come on a disaster management programme with very much a more humanitarian and aid view. And for a brief, you know, the first time I remember it being used, I was thinking, oh, they mean like, literally, as you say, you know, the guards that guard the water. And then I realized, oh, they mean a concept, a logistical concept. And so, um, you know, that takes me, I think that was 2008, that takes me to, to yesterday when I was doing a podcast with the United Nations on Britain's unrealistic view of its own water infrastructure and what we can learn from Africa. And I think, uh, you know, me and a, and a, and a great guy from um, Johannesburg were talking about lessons we can learn from Cape Town's drought. And I think one of the things I would like to see us do much more is um, be, you know, be the, be the children in the classroom, particularly in the UK and the US, just open our minds to whatever we can, we can learn. We had this great discussion yesterday because of, um, I think there has been a, there's been a, a, a quite a patronizing, privileged, colonial view sometimes the way that the UK and the US have, have thought about their own disaster management. And there's so much we can learn from other places constantly. Um, so that, that's, been uh, very, very important to me. Um, and I think the other thing, I mean, I touch on it in the new book is sort of how people who want to champion communities or humanitarian positions or a, a particular um, diversity within disaster are treated. And, and we had, as I said before, we had a, a terrible fire here in the UK in, the, in 2017. And one of the issues that's being fiercely debated at the moment is the care of uh, wheelchair users and other disabled people at the time of disaster. Now, you and I know that's been a trope of disaster management research for years, but we've got to stop letting these things become niche within disaster management and hear so many more voices. And you asked me at the start, you know, about the 2007 experience. And I said to you, you know, I was constantly listening and constantly observing. One of the things that the people of Tollbar helped me to see was how emergency management conferences and our big hitting events treat survivors and the flooded and residents. How, you know, they're incredibly intimidating environments often. So they might put, put you on the bill of a program. You know, it's a day about flooding and after lunch, we're going to hear from somebody who's flooded. But in an environment that they weren't used to, or for example, one of the situations was that the organiser of the Flash Emergency Management Conference had asked for the, the flooded homeowner to send their PowerPoint slides two weeks in advance, because that's what us cool speakers do. And she didn't have, she had never used PowerPoint before. As far as she was concerned, she'd been approached to tell her story of being in the flood. So one of the things I'm really hopeful with the book is, is, is how we find ways to put all voices into 
scientific advice into emergency management process and get a lot better at that. And we, you look out at some of our conferences, uh, particularly the UK, and they're very, very lacking in diversity. And that's, that's something I've been challenging head on. I think that that's going to be something that we're going to have to contend with for, for years to come. And I, I haven't really delved into the discussion of, you know, diversity specifically within emergency management, but working internationally, it's a very, very interesting discussion about what does diversity mean and what does diversity mean in an international environment. And so you can have a team of 10 different nations, you know, and 10 different cultures, and that's a very diverse environment. But, you know, on the surface, it may not like look diverse at all. And so I, I think that there's a lot of discussions that can be had with it, but there's always strength in different perspectives and ideas. And I, I always like to challenge, like you, I like to challenge my thoughts and challenge my ideas and preconceived notions because there are opportunities to learn from many different people and the different cultures and different ways of doing things. And it's all been very, very different in my experience. And so I think there's there's a strength in challenging ideas and there's a strength in, in asking for opinions. And I, I think there's a, a strength in seeking different perspectives. And people just, I think the, the higher up in the tiers that you go in leadership and public administration, you have to be comfortable in, in displaying that, you know, you're willing to ask questions and seek advice, right? Because you can't be an expert in everything, right? <laughs> Well, and I think because my career, my sort of formal responding career began with a with a firm that specialised in what's called disaster victim identification, we would go out to, you know, incidents all around the world and you would immediately adapt your processes to whatever the, the, the client wanted, but also what the culture wanted. So we had contracts throughout, for example, the Middle East. So I, you know, I learned, I think, a, a very fast adaptation in in disaster management and things that wouldn't that wouldn't work and i've got a piece coming out in a in a book reflecting on uh, social workers experiences uh in disasters in recent times in the uk i've got a chapter in that and in that i've really reflected on working on the grenfell disaster and although uh you know it was a, a british disaster i think there's over 30 different nationalities represented in the lives lost in the tower so some things that translated, uh, they didn't translate into the language at all. Some of the actions didn't translate. Some of the things really taught me a lot about things like insurance. So in the UK, uh, having an insurance policy is considered part of disaster recovery management. And the, and the government will kind of wash their hands of some of the financial responsibilities. But for many parts of the Islamic faith, insurance is haram forbidden. So we it, it really schooled me yet again on there's no one size fits all in disaster recovery. Actually, insurance is my favorite example of where the international work varies greatly in terms of challenging our own perspectives, because... Insurance is, is viewed in many other countries as simply just a, a highway robbery. You know, <laughs> like yeah. you pay yeah. into it and they never pay back. And so it's it's not really well respected in many different countries that especially developing yeah. nations, they just do not believe in insurance. So it, it's interesting because, you know, when you go overseas, you go somewhere and you're like, well, where's your insurance and all that stuff like that. And they're like, no, we don't do that. Yeah. And our, I mean, our entire guidance is predicated on it you know and that, and that was obviously something I draw on in the recovery myth it's a huge uh, assumption in the UK guidance is that families will be insured so we're getting sort of sort of our we're getting sort of towards our end of time here in terms of recovery what are some of the the top things that you know you would be advising people if if somebody was coming to you and asking you for perspective uh, what are some of the, the say 
three or four points that you would convey to them now. If somebody's working in recovery and they just want to hear your perspective or if they are, you know, want to sort of gain your insights and get better at what they're doing, what would that be? Oh, yes. Brilliant. And, and uh, that is what I'm doing a lot at the moment. I've got a talk uh, tomorrow morning and, and um, uh, I'm doing a lot for things like head teachers and um, local councils and things. You know, what, what to think about. And obviously a lot of that is children and young people focused at the moment. That's a, an area that you can tell I feel very passionate about. And one of the challenges there in recovery is we've probably really broken our social contract with young people. You know, we tell them behave, sit your exams, play nice and, and, the, and the future's yours. So we're going to see a lot of anger and a lot of distress. So one area I find um, very useful is to explore what might be next for children and young people. I think like all of us in disaster recovery, um, a lot of my training uh, is hooked around wonderful documents like the New Zealand um, Red Cross uh, Leading in Recovery Guidance. I'm so glad that was out there in existence before that. So if you are working in recovery management or just interested in it, and of course, as you and I know, that heading leading in disaster recovery doesn't mean political leaders. It means the light bearers of recovery. So it means head teachers, people of uh, ministers of faith, um, local community charities. It's such an important document. And I, I find a reason to tweet it about once a month. So that's another thing that I talk about a lot. The biggest thing that I, I tackle very gently and very, de very delicately is time how long this will take. And just because a government rings a bell and says, we're moving on to the next phase, doesn't mean that any of the feelings go. Um, I, What I'm seeing in a lot of colleagues, I'm sure you're the same, is a lot of exhaustion, a lot of weariness. And after the disaster is a most acute phase, comes a real reckoning in terms of both physical and mental health. And one of the things that I find people are most receptive to is me telling them what it's normal to feel. So from my work in recovery, really this kind of two year low, the burnout, the exhaustion, uh, a lot of friends and family have been kind of pinning that on what could this be? You know, and I'm not saying, you know, put off a visit to your, your, your doctor, you know, still get everything checked, but just recognizing that life in disaster, chronic disaster, like we explore in the recovery myth is, um, is incredibly exhausting and, and knowing what that feels like and putting yourself first and checking in on your relationships. So often, you know, I'll be hired to do quite a businessy strategic talk, but you'll see the most light bulbs on go on with people when you're talking about what it feels like in year three, four of a, of a disaster. And, and, and I think if we can get that message out, we can help a lot of people with their, um, with their exhaustion at the moment that it's not, it's not them. It's living in disaster. So if we're getting at the the Lucy Easthope crystal ball, you know, what what are you sort of projecting or seeing over the next, let's say, two years? Well, one thing we really worry about is history has suggested that after epidemics come the really difficult times, and they particularly um, take the form of civil disobedience and disturbance. And we've got some inklings of that. Um, you see, you know, history has always taught us that there will be this uh, lack of trust in governments and, and local response. Um I I think it would be remiss of me to not say that there's some very, very challenging times. One of the things that we didn't ready in the UK for enough was we have two big social events. The, the Brexit um, changes for us have been profound. And that's not a political point. You know, disaster planners don't have politics. They just respond to the event. And, 
you know, for us, leaving the EU was seismic socially and financially. So there was that and the pandemic to contend with. And one thing I would have really wished we could have done more of in 2020 was to prepare people for what we will see 2023-24, which will be a cost of living crisis and some very hard times in the UK. And of course, both the US and the UK continue to have, nobody wants me to say this, but they continue to have as their highest national risk, an influenza pandemic. So if you're if you're coming to any of my seminars as an emergency planner, I'm not I'm not letting you off. You know, we've got a lot of work to do. We've got cyber and terrorism are both very high threats. We've got in the UK very high flooding alert. But flu, you know, as you well know, you don't you don't buy yourself out of a flu pandemic just because you've had a corona pandemic. So we're going again, you know, and we are six months ahead. We're like a Paris fashion house in, in disaster management, as I've said before, and we are ready to go again. And for that, I thank the tribe, you know, here and in the USA and around the world. Best life choice I ever made was joining you lot. So thank you. All right, Lucy, thank you so much. It's been very interesting to, to have you here today. And I would encourage everybody to go look for When the Dust Settles coming out in 31st of March. Is that right, Lucy? It is, yes, yes. So, all right. Where can we find it? Uh, hopefully very soon in America. But if you're in the US, uh, in the UK, Australia, uh, New Zealand, it's available from any good bookshop to pre-order now. Perfect. Thank you so much. And if we wanted to find you um, anywhere else, where, where could they find you? Oh, yes, please. Um, come and follow me on the Twitter, at Lucy Gobag. And I leave my messages open if you need anything. <laughs> Give me a shout. Okay, great. All right, Lucy, thank you so much. It's been great having you. Thank you, Kyle. This podcast is brought to you in partnership between Capacity Building International and the International Emergency Management Society. You can join teams today at tiems.info, that's tiems.info, and also sign up for the International Emergency Management Newsletter by CBI at capacitybuildingint.com. Is there a topic you would like to hear about? Or are you a functional expert and want to be featured on our show? If so, reach out to us at info at capacitybuildingint.com and let us know. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.